Happy spring break, Colin Christian. Hey, I know the audio quality is a little less than what we're used to with these conversations happening remotely now, but I think you'll find that the depth and quality of content in today's episode with Mary Hulst is well worth the listen. Mary is the chaplain at Kelvin University, and every time we talk or I get to hear her speak, I walk away blessed and usually thinking deeply about what it means to follow Jesus. I think you'll discover the very same thing today. So, without further ado, Mary Holst on HC Medium Talk. God's will for your life is for you to love Him and love other people. And if you do that every day, those days add up to a life lived out of faithfulness to God. So, Mary, you're a HC alumna, is that correct? You went to Holland Christian? I did. I went to Holland Christian. I graduated in 1987. And... I just rediscovered my yearbooks from both middle school and high school. So that was very oh, entertaining. Hey, would you take a picture of Dan Walcott and send it to me <laughs> later? <laughs> yes. Yes, I will. So looking back at some of those high school years, are there, are there any themes that kind of emerge when you think back to uh, maybe what God was up to in your life even back then? Oh, yeah. I was actually, um, I've had a little time to do some cleaning and I found a lot of my notes actually from high school, including some journals I wrote um, for Mr. Heatheis and and for Dan Walcott in a modern religions class. And it was so interesting to read what I was passionate about in high school and how those passions have continued to now. So I loved Bible class. I um, My first real experiences in leadership or organizing, that happened in high school. You know, I was captain of the swimming team and I, the spaghetti supper, the junior year fundraiser, these are all leadership opportunities. And to be able to do that at a high school level and just try was really important for my ability to have confidence in myself and say like, oh, I could do this. So I loved my years at Holland Christian. I was on the swimming team, which was so much fun. I sang in choirs. It was just, it was, I, I started, I was on the first girls soccer team when it started as a club sport, my junior year. So lots of great memories of my time at Holland Christian. Really, really grateful for all my years from uh, pre-K all the way up. So it sounds like you were already developing a love for leadership, but also for, for your faith, for your love for Jesus. Can you tell us a little bit about what were some of the beginnings or, or what maybe interested you or began captivating you about this Jesus guy? Yeah, I think uh, when I was you know, growing up, there was something about the church that captured my attention. Hmm. Um, when I was young, you know, y'all try to get nursery duty so you can uh, get out yes. of <laughs> sanctuary worship. And and I said to my mom when I was probably nine, I said, I don't want to be on the nursery list anymore. I'd really rather be in worship because there was something about gathering together. I loved learning theology. Uh, I loved what my church was teaching me about a God who loved me and believed in me and about how Jesus saved me and the Holy Spirit empowered me to use my gifts. It was very much a place for me where I felt uh, the church felt safe. It felt inviting. It felt like there were people there who believed in me and believed in my gifts. And so, you know, our research now shows that five non-parental adults in the life of students growing up is really important. And when I look back on my church and my school career and my uh, athletic career, I can see those people. 
I could just name them. They were people who were showing me what it was like to follow Jesus. Yeah, these were people who, you know, would intentionally live simply, who made sacrifices for their churches, financial sacrifices, sacrifices of time. These were people I watched some of my teachers go through significant loss, uh, whether that was a cancer treatment or the loss of someone that they loved and how they were honest about their faith and honest about lament. And there wasn't a sense of faith always looks happy clappy. I mean, I think my the faith that I was exposed to and in my Holland Christian years was a faith that was nuanced and deep and deeply reformed in all the best ways. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for that. There wasn't ever a sense like, well, if I'm a Christian, my life should go great all the time. Because I would look around and I would see people for whom life wasn't great, and they were still faithfully going to church and faithfully leading class devotions. And I would think, you know, there's there's a lot to this following Jesus thing. And it's not easy, but it's rich and meaningful and life-giving. Mary, you've got me teared up already. We're only five <laughs> minutes in. I just, it's so refreshing to hear, because I think maybe in the in the culture that there's a, a sense that the church is a real obstacle to Jesus. You know, you hear that saying that a lot of people admire and love Jesus, but the church is just this big problem. Yeah. Uh, and yet you're saying quite the opposite. You're saying it was the church that was so attractive that was the the link between you and meeting this God. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. yeah. And, and you know, and of course, having pastored a church and being part of churches, I'm very aware of the, the flaws. You know, every church is made up of imperfect, sinning human beings. And so that's what we're going to see. But there are just these moments of grace and truth that shine out in the Church of Jesus Christ. And when I talk to my students now at Calvin University, many of them talk about people in their church. And it's, you know, the church, in quotes, like the big church, can have problems. Absolutely. But that's where it's like, how do I, as an individual member of a congregation, lean in? How do I make sure that my local congregation is as healthy as it can be? How do I make sure that the the students in my congregation have me as their person? Hmm. I can't fix the Church of Jesus Christ, right? I can't suddenly say, we've fixed all the problems, everybody's great, come on back. But I, in my own way, can influence my congregation, both my local church congregation and then the congregation at Calvin. What I try to do with my students is show them the faith that I learned growing up in Holland, which is a faith that is deep and nuanced and not afraid to ask the hard questions. And of course, I've got students, sometimes children of pastors for whom the church has meant a lot of wounds. And to be able to walk with them and say, yeah, I I get that. I'm with you in this. And let's focus on Jesus and let's focus on getting you healthy. And eventually let's work on some forgiveness because I don't want you to turn away from Jesus because the church is hard. Mm. And to be able to say to them, this is the rest of your life. Don't let people who have failed you turn you away from the God who has never failed you. Even in the last 10 years, Mary, I think God's been up to some of that in my own life. I had a a bit of a Job-like experience when I was particularly critical and cynical of the church Mm -hmm. and all these problems. And in the book of Job, after Job makes this this claim that the universe is unfair, it doesn't work according to justice, and, and God has this barrage of these questions about the universe that helps Job realize, oh, I I actually don't know the universe. You know, this is bigger (laughs) than than what I've glimpsed. 
Right. Uh, and it was like that. It was like Bryant. You, you know the church so well, and that it was this realization that there are two billion Christians or so on the planet, and I had a bad experience with four of them. <laughs> right. And there right. was this this humbling, like there's more to the church. And when you are able to a little bit of that forgiveness, you realize there's a lot of really incredible people who loved me and have helped me and have walked with me and and. That's what I want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when you look globally, um, this is an important thing about church history, too. When we teach about church history, it's so tempting to look at, oh, my goodness, the Crusades or whatever. Sure. And be like, oh, there's there are embarrassing parts to church history. Absolutely. But Christians were also the people who started hospitals. Christians are the people who start nonprofits. Christians are the people who are often the last to leave places of war, places of famine. Um, Right now, you know, we're hearing stories all the time about the Christian missionaries in different places, whether that's here in the United States or across the world, they're the ones who are reaching out and who are saying, how do we look like the church in this particular season? And uh, for every negative story we read, we need to tell 10 positive stories about, you know what my church is doing that's really cool? Because that helps us to remember, right, right. A lot of times the followers of Jesus do get it right. Not always, but mm. a lot of times. And let's celebrate that. Yeah, tell those stories. That's something I've always been drawn to about the Catholic tradition and having saints and festivals to tell the stories of people who, who love Jesus and other people really well. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate those stories just being part of the conversation, being in the air of yes. of the church. Yes. Yeah. So Mary, at, from your vantage point as a campus pastor, and I'll just say about you, one thing that's so cool and, and just something I admire about campus pastor in particular is this isn't just a, a one-time, you know, once-a-week check-in type thing, but you're actually doing life with these young people who are trying to figure out the faith. So from, from that vantage point that you have, that unique perspective, what would you say are some significant challenges to discipleship for young people right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the challenges of discipleship are owning the faith for themselves. So for a lot of them, it's the transition from what I've grown up with, whatever that was, we have in many different Christian traditions represented in my student body, and figuring out, is that the faith that I want to live out moving forward? So if I grew up and this is how my parents practiced faith, how much of that do am I grateful for? And how much of that do I think, eh, I'm not going to really do that. And to get them to sift rather than just chuck it out, it's a really important thing. Yeah, yeah. To say you can sift through the the legacy and inheritance of faith you've received and figure out which one of those things, which of those things is valuable to you in your faith. Uh, which of those things really matters? And this is where there's the differentiation between, as you've described, you know, the people who've hurt me versus wait, there's a big, big, big church out there, and the differentiation between joining a church and following Jesus. And I say, you you follow Jesus into the church. Jesus draws you into his church because he wants you to be fed and he wants you to have community and he wants you to have accountability and he wants you to use your gifts for other people. You're drawn into the church. Um, But sometimes first you need to take a step back and look at what do I believe? What is important to me? 
So in the fall during orientation, uh, we always have a workshop on choosing a church because we have so many students who come from across the world, never been to Grand Rapids, have no idea about the church situation in Western Michigan. And so I just talk with them. I lead a couple of workshops on this is what to think about because for many, many, many of them, they've never had to do this before. And so it's tempting to think about the church as well. I really like the music and I really like the preaching and they may not get beyond that. So I try to say to them, what do they believe? How can you belong? And then uh, how do you behold? So what do they believe? Like, do they actually believe the things you believe about the sacraments, about scripture, about theology, about spiritual gifts? Like, actually read their website. What do they believe about these things? And then where would you belong? It's not just a consumer thing. You just don't go for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. Do they have a group that you're interested in? How do they belong in their neighborhood? Are they, if you read their bulletin or you look at the announcements on the screens, you know, are they doing things for their neighborhood? Is there a sense that they're caring well for the people who are vulnerable among them? How do you belong and how does this church belong with their neighbors? And then how do you behold, that is, how do you behold the living God in this space? And so often we think about, and I find this with the rising generations, is that worship is a lot about feelings. And a church service, a worship service, they think needs to make them feel a particular way. Or if they don't feel God, there must be something wrong with their relationship with God. And so I talk, yeah. So I talk about, no, how you feel, thankfully, has nothing to do with God's love for you, God's presence in your life. And going to church, right? And beholding God in church when I'm not feeling close to God, when I go to a, a, a gathering with other people and I see other people sing and I hear other people pray and the scripture is read over me, I'm reminded like, it's not just about me. Like faith is not about me. It's about beholding God and what God is doing in the life of a community as much as what God is doing in my own life. And um, yeah, right. And so um, to move away from this idea of if I'm not feeling God, God must be angry at me. I must be doing something wrong. Or if that worship service doesn't make me just feel like super enlivened, well, then that's not the church for me to be able to go. No, 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 no. There's, there's a lot of other things that happen in our relationship with God. It's like my relationship with my spouse, right? Are there days when I feel super in love with him and delight in him? Absolutely. And are there other days where it's like, eh, you know, we're fine. Sure. Right. Uh, right. Right. We all have this. And I'm with everyone living closely together. I think we're all experiencing that deeply. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Amen. I can get my uh, wife upstairs to testify right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then it's the same in our relationship with God. Like, yeah, yeah. If every time I am talking to God, I'm expecting something profound to happen. That puts a lot of pressure on that relationship. When I call my best friend, I don't expect every conversation is going to be profound. Right, right. But if I don't call her regularly, there will be no conversation that's Mm. profound. And so it's It's the regular and consistent exposure to communication with God and what God is up to in our lives and in the lives of our communities that help us get a good and healthy relationship with God. 
Amen. Yeah, if you, using that metaphor, if you think of the, a TV show like The Bachelor, which, you know, every episode, my understanding is like this big, amazing date, you know, you go to this fantastic place. It's like that emotion, that, that relationship, I mean, for more reasons than one is set up just to fail because <laughs> real life isn't right. actually anything like The Bachelor come to find out. Right. Uh, and if you're hoping to sustain a long-term relationship, you got to get used to paying bills together, having hard conversations, but also just kind of normal, nothing blah type days. Because yeah. uh, I think roots are going down into that, into the soil, that relationship on those days, though you can't often see Absolutely. It. Absolutely. And it's the same in our relationship with God. You know, it's, mm. we read scripture every day, not for deep, profound moments, although deep, profound moments can happen. We read scripture every day so that we really learn to know what the voice of God sounds like. Yes. And uh, the more I spend time in the voice of God through scripture, the more I can recognize it when God is speaking to me through scripture or through other people. And there are blah days for sure. Um, and there have been saints who've gone before who've written a lot about Dark Night of the Soul. And mm. Mother Teresa's story is amazing about how through much of her life, she did not feel the presence of God. And yet she was faithful and she went to mass and she cared for the poor because that was how she lived her faith. Her faith wasn't dependent on how she felt about God or how she thought God should feel about her. It's about the reality that in Jesus Christ, her sins have been forgiven and she has hope a new life. And mm. so she just lived faithfully regardless of how she felt. Amen. I remember reading some of her journals. I think I was in high school. We read a, a part of her diary and I remember just thinking like, oh no, she didn't feel God like every day. Because if there's someone who just has this sense of, of God and God's presence in her life, it's her, right? But right. realizing she didn't. And now I realize, oh wow, I'm so thankful I read that actually. Yes. Yes. And I think that's why testimonies are important, which is kind of talking about what I said about my experience at Holland Christian. That wasn't explicitly named often, but you observed it, that there were people who they were living faithful lives, even when it seemed like God wasn't showing up the way that they wanted. Hmm. And I think when it comes to the church and discipleship and our students the best thing we can do is be honest and transparent and say, hey, this Christianity thing is hard. And so don't sign up for this thinking you're going to be guaranteed a happy life. That's not the way it works. Like read the New Testament. And, and that realistic and yet hopeful portrayal of the Christian faith is what I think our young people really need right now. Yeah, amen. We often say, if you want to have a significant life, ask the question, what do you care about God? But don't be surprised if it becomes a lot more uncomfortable and challenging, uh, but also significant and meaningful at the same time. That's exactly right. Yep. That's okay, exactly so right. Chal challenges to discipleship for young, young people, owning the faith, and you're talking mm -hmm. about finding a church, such a, mm -hmm. an important part of that. Uh, what else do you see as a challenge or an obstacle for discipleship for young people today? I think the uh, pervasiveness of screens and distraction is a challenge for all of us. But I grew up at a time where my brain was fully developed before the screens all launched into our lives. And what I'm finding with my students is the anxiety and depression around screen use and screen time and 
um, the social media likes and it's just creating a space where they can't settle down. So it, it comes out in a couple of ways. One is they can't settle down with scripture. Uh, they can't settle down in prayer because uh, their brains, like so many more of our brains, are just looking for the next dopamine hit of, did someone like me? Did someone email me? Did someone text me? And to be present with the Lord needs attentiveness. And so shaping young people to the point, and all of us, where we can just sit with the word and be attentive is so important. And we're shaping a culture where to sit and be attentive to anything is so hard. So one of the things that I'll talk with my students is simple things like start low. Leave your phone in your car when you go to church. Just leave it in your car. You don't need it in church. And then let's leave our phones in our backpacks when we walk across campus so that we can look each other in the eye and say, hello, good morning. Let's practice being present where we are. And uh, studies show that the less we look at screens, which is ironic in this current season, the yeah, less right. we look at screens and the more present we are, the happier we are and the more content we are with our own lives. And so so that's one way that that manifests is, you know, the, the inability to just settle down and be present with the Lord or with other people. It's amazing how challenging even you said leaving your phone in the car during church I find, and I didn't grow up with a phone, but I find that's hard. It's yep. it's hard to just leave it behind. And it kind of is, is evidence to that addictiveness of of a screen or those dopamine hits when, when there's, I've got a text or I've got an email, uh, which is just really revealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I love the Shema when, when God says, you know, I am one. And I think that's this monotheistic claim for sure. But I also like to think about it as as God is one. He's undivided in his attention toward Israel. You can see this picture of God looking directly without distraction at his people and inviting us to love God you know, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, because technology allows us to be in so many different places. It allows us to divide ourselves in so many clever ways mm-hmm. and to say, can I be one right now with God? And that's a, that's a challenge, but and I think it also takes a little training too. Cause it does. It does. Yeah. It's, and even for, you know, those of us who are quote unquote grownups, we need to guard our time around this. And I know I have my best experiences in quiet and solitude when my phone is in a different room mm. and turned off and I'm not even tempted by it. Right. And so being able to say like, this is a tool, and I don't need it all the time. It's like, I wouldn't walk around with a hammer all the time. <laughs> like, just in case something needs to be hammered. But our <laughs> phones, we walk around with all the time, just in case. And it's like, you know, it's, no, you're, you'll be fine. And uh, those things like to go for a walk without a phone and just quiet yourself down. I think is it going to become more and more of a skill to be learned. In fact, that's something maybe younger classes at Holland Christian could begin to develop with their students about how can I calm my brain down? Mm. Um, Because the anxiety and depression that we're seeing in our students just been skyrocketing since screens have just taken over our lives. And the overstimulation of our brains means that they don't get a chance to rest and to heal 
which is what our brains need. They need times when there's nothing stimulating them. And so the author of iGen, Jean Twingy, she talks about, you know, don't sleep with your phone in your room, which is great. And there's an element of calm that even just comes in your bedroom when you think this is a distraction-free place. And so cultivating those habits, I think, as soon as students get smartphones, is going to be really important. And then having people who all live together practicing that same kind of discipline is going to be really important too. And the studies all show that the the less we have our students um, on screens and social media, and the more we have them with other human beings, their contentment goes up and their happiness goes up and the anxiety and depression go down. And what's amazing is I can know that. And I do know that, for example, getting rid of social media or pushing it to the side at at the very least, I know, and I've experienced that that I'm actually happier and more content. And yet I don't. (laughs) That's when our, our red flags should all be going up. We can identify and yet we can't do it. Oh, yeah. It's like I would much rather eat cookies than an apple. Yeah, sure. Right. Right. I would much rather lie down than go for a run. But I know, right, it's, it's, we all just live Romans 7 all the time. The good that we know we should do, we don't do. And the bad things we shouldn't do, we do. And thanks be to God, right, that this isn't the end of our story and that every day is a fresh start. That's the other thing we need to give to our students is the other prong that I see in the anxiety is this sense in our students that they need to have their life mapped out. Hmm. That if they choose the wrong major or if they live with the wrong people or if they get the wrong internship, suddenly their entire the rest of their life is ruined or goes in a different place. And to be able to say, you don't need your life mapped out. You don't. You don't have to worry about five years from now. I'll say to my students, look, nobody walks up to me and says, what are you going to be doing four years from now? Hmm. It's like, I don't know. I could be doing this, but could be doing I don't know. But they're asked that question all the time. Yeah. High school seniors, students in college, what are you doing? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? Right? As if every degree has an immediate practical application. And to be able to give them the comfort and grace to say, look, God is full of surprises. You're going to learn things and take classes uh, in college that you've never experienced before and you're going to fall in love with something that totally surprises you amen and it's going to be great so and it's totally fine if you think uh this happens so often we have somebody who who, you know a student who thinks i'm going to do speech pathology and then they're six weeks into their first speech pathology class and they hate it and they say i'm just going to disappoint so many people we're like who who are you going to disappoint you've been taking classes for six weeks yeah if your yeah, mom and dad I, I, are don't, you know, they'll be fine. Everybody who went to your high school open house, if they find out you're actually majoring in writing, they're going to be fine. Yes. I, I think I interpreted it, Mary, as God's displeasure until I uh, could figure out, until I knew what exactly I was going to do. And even just identifying that was so freeing to, to say, how, how ridiculous. You know, sometimes when I say the things I'm subtly believing out loud, I can identify <laughs> the craziness of it. Right. Right. So God's just waiting for me to figure out my life. And then he's like, okay, now I now, love you. <laughs> now you're good. I've been dropping hints all along. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and help our students understand the delight of God in them right where they are, doing what they're doing. 
Yeah. That's oh, so amen. That you, amen. it's not like you're waiting for God to bless you. God is blessing you. God's will for your life is for you to love him and love other people. Like that. There you go. And if you do that every day, those days add up to a life lived out of faithfulness to God. Amen. I, I love the I love the forty years in the wilderness has taken on new significance uh, mm. to me lately. Just the idea that, in one sense, weren't really going anywhere, but God was doing something in them. It wasn't mm-hmm. about where He was taking them, but but who He was shaping them, making them to be a people who trusted and could depend upon the living God to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps, yeah, God's more interested in doing something in us than just taking us to a particular job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other thing I, I tell students all the time is God doesn't waste anything. Hmm. So if you've spent two years nursing, you know, doing a nursing major, and you realize like, I don't really like this. I really want to be a science teacher. And you feel like I've wasted two years. It's like, no, you needed those two years to figure out what you really loved. And sometimes figuring out what we don't like is just as important as figuring out what we like. Mm-hmm. And God is with you in that. Think of all the friends you have in those nursing classes now. Think of all the experiences you had in these last two years. That's not wasted. Just to yeah, recognize I, that learning is worship and whether it plays into a career or not. Now that I'm in my 30s, I look back at some of the courses I took that I considered kind of a waste or worthless in a liberal <laughs> arts education. Uh, I look back and like, man, I am developing now interests and realizing that there was something going on in my brain and my soul in music 101 when <laughs> I couldn't recognize or identify any practical purpose for this course. Right. Yeah. It's so important. You're Anytime we're exposed to something new about God's creation, that's a good thing. Oh, yeah. You know, we're just, we're learning about uh, what is he up to in this world? And maybe I'll never major in music, but wow, there's a lot of beauty in music. And the variety of music is an expression of the variety of God's people. And Right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, that's awesome. So true. So owning the faith, pervasiveness of screens and distractions, this pressure to have life figured out. Mary, I think your insights on these three barriers to discipleship are so encouraging and will be helpful to our students. Do you mind my asking, you're talking about learning. Uh, what's something you're learning these days? Maybe something that pertains to your role as a campus pastor or maybe something outside that domain in one mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. I'm learning about, I think we're all learning about the need for human connection. Mm. I'm realizing how much I miss my students, which I think every teacher uh, is really coming to understand. It's like, I just miss having them around, Mm. which makes me realize how much I deeply love them. And I kind of knew that on a cognitive level. Uh, like, oh, I love my job and I love my students. And then not to really have my job or my students in the same way. Mm-hmm. I'm really understanding like, oh, no, I really do. <laughs> I yes. really, really love them. And I really miss them, which has been an important learning. Uh, I think I'm learning about the pace of life. And I've always been someone who's tried to practice Sabbath. And my husband said to me the other day, he says, this feels like Groundhog's Day. Like every day is the same. (laughs) You know, we don't go out. We don't have anything in the evenings. We're just, there's this 
blahness to the days. And I think, oh, what a gift to have Sabbath as like, oh, this is a different day. This is a day, you know, I don't have to do any virtual meetings and I don't have to, you know, uh, it's like, oh. And so uh, we've done little delights like we have um, and his last grocery store trip, we got baking mixes so that on Sundays I bake and uh, it's a special treat and it makes the day different from all other days. And to say, I can just rest and read and pray and watch church or churches online. Um, it's like, oh, this is a different day. This is a day where I can lay my anxieties and cares down before the Lord and remember that he's in control and I can rest. And so learning the value of Sabbath after, you know, 25 years of trying to practice Sabbath, uh, learning it in a different way, I think has been a real gift. Hmm. Mary, are you reading anything these days that you could recommend maybe for thinking mm-hmm. specifically of a high school, college-ish audience? Hmm. I'm looking, I'm literally looking around my study right now. <laughs> it depends what they're interested in. So yeah. um, this is a great time to reread, for example, the Chronicles of Narnia. Ooh, amen. We could right? have a whole episode on the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> oh, so good. And I find that every time I, I try to read through the whole series once a year, every time I read them, I'm like, oh, I never noticed that before. Yes. So rereading the Chronicles, uh, rereading Lord of the Rings, if uh, you're more of a reader is really, really helpful. I think um, you have to also have playful things like um, I have a stack of Calvin and Hobbes comic books and I have not read them in years. And to haul them out and read it, and I'm just giggling. Uh, To have things that make you laugh, so important. Um, My daughters are really into coloring right now. And so I've been coloring a lot. And I realize I've probably not colored in 20 some years. And I, it's just, it, I can't even describe it, but it just does something to me. That's like, wow, this is good. Like, this is really good. It's very calming. Yes. Yep. Yep. I agree. Those, those kind of little craft things are really good. One of the things you talked you asked me about learning, I'm trying to learn bird calls so that I can recognize birds when I'm out walking. And to be able to just say, uh, during this season, I'm going to learn something totally different. I'm going to read something <laughs> totally different. Yeah. I think is really fun. So I'm reading N.T. Wright, you know, um, and I've got more to Paul is a significant book. It's a fat biography of Paul. But I've also just read just novels and playful things and really enjoy that kind of stuff. I think mm. when I think about what my students get captivated by, it's, you know, the classics of spiritual disciplines, uh, reading Richard Foster, The Celebration of Discipline. What is he talking about there? What does it mean to fast? We've had uh, our student leadership teams in the dorms take a spiritual discipline for six weeks and try it together. Hmm. And so they've done fasting and they've done solitude and they've done celebration which is a spiritual discipline. And they've done confession. And to read, you know, Richard Foster and listen to some of his podcasts has been really good. Like Phil Yancey, I think What's So Amazing About Grace is one of those books that you read and you're like, oh. And I think for particularly for high school students who've grown up in a Christian home, grown up in a Christian context, 
to read what's so amazing about grace hmm. takes things you've learned in your head and puts them in your heart. Oh, so uh, good. Yeah, especially some of those words that you're familiar with, but you realize you're not at all familiar with. <laughs> and it mm-hmm. almost takes a, a re-meeting those words to re- to recognize they're not words. They're they're pointing to realities that are just absolutely breathtaking and life-changing. Yes. For people who are interested in more um, spiritual disciplines or what does it look like to do solitude or retreat, anything by Ruth Haley Barton is terrific. Oh, yeah. She's great. Invitation to solitude and silence, invitation to retreat, strengthening the soul of your leadership. And she's got a great podcast as well. So check that out. And then uh, Eternity is Now in Session by John Oh, I just finished that and Oh, yeah. Isn't that a great book? Yeah. Oh, man. I love how small it is, too, that it's just, it kind of gets to the point. And it's, oh, I loved it. I started highlighting the parts that weren't mind-blowing just to save ink in my highlighter because (laughs) I just loved it. And I think it's such a great corrective to this Christian idea that, like, well, someday, I'll have, you know, eternal life. It's out there. And and to realize like, no, 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 actually Christian life teaches that the life that I'm living now is the life that goes into eternity. And it looks different after death and it looks different after I rise again, but it's now, it's me and it's now. And I think it's such a great corrective to the, you know, heaven is the sweet by and by when we die. And it's like, no, 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 heaven comes down to earth. Um, Yes. Which is one of N.T. Wright's big things, too, and Surprised by Hope, which is another great book. If, you, if you're curious about the afterlife or if you're curious about heaven and hell, Surprised by Hope is a great book and easy to read. It's, it's, it looks fat, but it's actually a very easy read. But there's this, this sense of like both Orberg and Wright push against this idea that we're just waiting around to escape right. this earth and with Jesus. It's like, no, no, no. Jesus is actually going to come back to us on this earth. And the eternal life starts now. So such good stuff. So so true. Just the sweetness of life with Jesus now. That, just, yep. that book was just precious to me. Yep. Oh. Hey, Mary, you mentioned bird calls. Can you give us any bird calls here? <laughs> I can't do them. The podcast? Oh, you just learning to hear them. them. I'm just learning oh, to hear man, them. That's disappointing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. My husband were here. He could do a pretty good goose, but uh, oh. <laughs> from his days as a hunter. But I, my study is uh, upstairs and I look out over this wooded area and I hear birds all the time. And so now I'm able to say, you know, oh, nuthatch, red-winged blackbird, chickadee, mm. uh, starling. You know, I'm able to just be like, oh, there we go. Oh, there's a great blue heron that literally is just flying by right now. Beautiful. So good. <laughs> Mary Holst, hey, I am so thankful for you. So I'm a hope grad, Mary, so it takes a lot to say. I'm, I, I just appreciate you and love you and love what you're up to at Kelvin. So you, can, you Thanks, know it's Fred. sincere coming from a hope I grad. I do. I do. I do. I'm married to hope grad, so we're, we're good. Oh, all right. The, hey, you, you, you solved the rivalry in your marriage. That's in perfect. our marriage. That's exactly right. Well, um, I'm grateful for you, and I'm so thankful that you were willing to take some time to talk to our community this morning. So happy to do it. Go Maroons. Hey, go Maroons. Thanks, Mary. You bet.